Welcome to The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women leave the workforce when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support working mothers. But in this show, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas. There is definitely enough time to build a wonderful career and to be very involved in your family life and to have time for your own pursuits too. That was today's guest, Laura Vanderkam. Laura is the author of several time management and productivity books, including Juliet's School of Possibilities, Off the Clock, I Know How She Does It, What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, and 168 Hours. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company, and Fortune. She is also the host of the podcast Before Breakfast and the co-host with Sarah Hart Unger of the podcast Best of Both Worlds. She lives outside Philadelphia with her husband and four children and blogs at lauravandercam.com. In our conversation, Laura shared some of her time management strategies, her path to success, advice on networking, and how she tackles her own day. Hey, Laura, thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me. All right, so do you mind uh, kicking off by sharing a bit about what your current role and day and life is like? Yeah, so I've been kind of wondering exactly how to introduce myself these days. I've always introduced myself as a writer. Um, I write books on time management and productivity. I recently had one called out called Juliet's School of Possibilities, which is a time management fable, a little story about the power of priorities. So that was really fun to write, mm-hmm. a little different, a, a novel about time management. Uh, I also do a lot of speaking about the topic, but uh, you know, of late, I've been spending a lot of time podcasting. I uh, recently launched a new show called Before Breakfast, which is every weekday morning, a short productivity tip to help listeners take their day from great to awesome. And so I don't know, I guess that, that's what my uh, my new job is. And you also have a, a pretty full personal life. Do you mind sharing what that looks like right now? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm married and I have four children. They are currently 11, 9, 7, and 4. So you're really busy and you have a podcast on tips before breakfast. What got you into all of this? Like what made productivity something that caused you to not only think about it so much that it's part of your day, but something that you wanted to share with others, productivity management? Yeah. Well, it's not that there was one good moment. I think I've always been interested in the field of self-help and sort of the very satisfying stories of how people can truly improve their lives. And and I think that time is pretty much the most precious resource we have. I mean, people can make more money, but no one can make more time. I mean, once a second is gone, it's gone. And all the money in the world can't buy it back. Um, on the other hand, you know, when, when we think about it, we do have kind of a prodigious amount of time in our lives. Uh, we can we can spend it in all kinds of ways and do amazing things with it. And so I love exploring how everyone spends the 168 hours we all have each week. 
time on it. Certainly when I became a parent for the first time 11 years ago, all these issues took on a newfound intensity. Anyone who's been through that transition, of course, of becoming a parent knows that you are aware of your time in a different way uh, when you are more accountable for it, um, not just in terms of, say, needing childcare when you're working per se, but uh, you know, wanting to spend enough time with your kids, wanting to have enough time for your own pursuits, trying to get enough sleep when sometimes mm -hmm. that's not the easiest thing to do. Uh, so I definitely found myself thinking a lot more about time during that window and, you know, exploring how other people were spending their time and then writing about it. And have you always been a writer? I have. I can't say that I've ever really had a whole lot of real jobs <laughs> in it, but uh, I, I did journalism for a while and, um, you know, was writing for various places, newspapers, magazines, when I began writing books. And then speaking came out of the books and, and podcasting also came out of the books. What is something that you currently incorporate into your own day? I know you have many tips for others, but what's the biggest thing or most impactful thing that you do to, to manage your own time? Well, I think the most impactful thing I do is think about how I'm going to spend my time. You know, when people think about what it means to waste time and what, what sort of time wasters exist in all our lives, I mean, we think about things like television or social media or meetings that go on too long. And sure, all of those do, in fact, waste time. But I think the biggest way people waste time is by being mindless about the time that we do have. We don't think about how we want to spend our time. And so we tend to spend it in ways that are most obvious or effortless or mindless. And, and then it, it passes and we haven't done things that would be more meaningful or enjoyable to do with those hours. I mean, just as one example, if you don't go into a work day thinking about what you would like to accomplish in that work day, well, the odds that you're spending your time on you know, the really most important things is low. I mean, you'll react to whatever's right in front of you. I mean, you'll hack through your inbox and be tired at the end of hacking through your inbox. But did you do anything that moves you or your organization forward? Well, it's, it's hard to know. Or you come home from work and let's say you're home at six o'clock and you go to bed at 11. What do you want to do at that time? A lot of people never even think about this. They're like, well, I guess I'll, you know, eat dinner, get my kids to bed, watch TV. If I had to put it, that's quite a bit of time. I mean, if there's something else you wanted to do, adventures you'd like to have, the, you know, we can wind up having that time fritter away without really thinking about it. So I think a lack of intentionality is the biggest problem. And so I really try to think about any unit of time before I'm in it. Um, you know, practically, this means I tend to plan my weeks on Fridays. And, and really think about what I want to do, both professionally and personally. LinkedIn Marketing Solutions is the de facto environment for B2B marketers and advertisers to drive brand awareness, generate leads, and build long-term powerful relationships that result in real business impact. Advertising on LinkedIn's network of more than 575 million members is precise and powerful with the ability to effectively target the right message to the right people while they're in a professional mindset. This results in higher quality leads, more website traffic, and higher brand awareness. 
When it comes to marketing your business, I know it's all about reaching the right audience at the right time and connecting with them when your message will resonate the most. So if you want to target your customers where they are engaging every day like me, and when they're ready to make a decision, LinkedIn can help you. When you advertise on LinkedIn, the world's largest professional network, you have the ability to build long-term relationships with your customers. Those relationships often translate into high quality leads, website traffic, and higher brand awareness. What's the first step? Talking to the right audience. With a community of over 575 million professionals on LinkedIn, including me, you have access to a diverse group of people searching for the things they need to grow professionally. LinkedIn has the marketing tools to help you target your audience with precision, down to their job title, company name, and industry. Because better targeting equals a message your customers care about, which in turn leads to more trust built with your customers. In fact, four out of five customers who are on LinkedIn are the decision makers at their company. So you're building relationships that really matter. To redeem a free $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash the 43%. That's linkedin.com slash T-H-E 43-P-E-R-C-E-N-T for your free $100 ad credit. Terms and conditions apply. And do you do you have or do you track like the amount of time certain activities should take? I know one time I felt I felt like I was constantly procrastinating on silly things like oh the dishes or whatever. And one day I was like, you know what, I'm just going to time all of these activities and see how long they take. And when you actually do that and, and you have kids who are procrastinating on stuff too around the house, all of a sudden I can go back and say, look, actually doing the dishes took less than five minutes or taking out the garbage took 30 seconds or yes. whatever it was. Yes. Oh, that is such a great idea. I, I have been tracking my time, in fact, for a long time uh, as, as part of being interested in time management. I've actually been tracking my time for about four years now in half hour increments, which I, I want to stress that nobody listening to this actually needs to do. <laughs> that, is, that is not my time <laughs> management advice for people. This is just something I do for myself. But yeah, it turns out that emptying the dishwasher takes five to seven minutes. Like I hate emptying the dishwasher, but guess what? It takes five to seven minutes. It's it's really not that big a deal. You know, even things that I've, I've really procrastinated because they seem nebulous and huge and unpleasant, like, you know, organizing my receipts to do my business taxes. And then I do mm-hmm. it and it's like, huh, you know, it took maybe 90 minutes. <laughs> and it's right. like built up in my brain is like 90 days it's going to take. And that, that's not quite right. So where do you think that comes from that? Because I think we all do that. And especially anyone who procrastinates does that, myself included, I inflate how long I think something is going to take sometimes if I don't want to do it. But then I'll jump into other things that I enjoy and and they could actually take longer, but I don't think anything of it. Yeah, well, time has um, very different feeling uh, depending on how we feel about it. Right? We, we perceive time very differently. Um based on our mindset. And so it's natural that the things you don't want to do feel like they take longer than the things that you do want to do. And and when we're thinking about something like procrastination, obviously one way we can convince ourselves that we don't have time to do something is by inflating the amount of time it will take. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously I don't have 90 days to do my taxes. I mean, I probably have 90 minutes, but by telling myself it's 90 days, I go, oh, I'm never going to get to that. You know, so it's, it's one way to, to sort of, 
put it off for what seems like a reasonable reason. You know, the the funny part about our our time perception and, and how it relates to how we feel about what we're doing is that we tend to misjudge how long things take in, in sometimes rather consequential ways. Uh, I know from studying time logs that lots of people have kept for me over the years that um, people who work uh, for a salary instead of getting paid by an hour and who work sort of you know, white collar jobs that maybe take 40 or a bit more hours a week have a tendency to inflate how many hours they work, uh, often mm. by quite a bit. We tend to underestimate how much we sleep. Uh, again, because, you know, if you have a bad night of sleep, it feels really bad. And so you remember mm-hmm. it. Uh, and in your mind, that can become typical. But it turns out that we often sleep less on what we consider a typical day than what we do on, say, an actual day. Like when people are asked how they spent yesterday, they often have worked less yesterday, slept more yesterday, and had more leisure time yesterday than they do on their picture of a typical day. Oh, interesting. So what is the difference for someone who is not a salaried worker? If they're working on the, you know, an hourly wage, they have a, do they have a more true sense of time and how many hours they've worked? Well, yes, because they're getting paid yeah. for it, right? right, like, right. I mean, if you are, are billing a certain number of hours or punching in and punching out on the clock, I mean, you have a, a much more clear record and it, it's hard to change that where, or, or convince yourself or anyone else that it's different. Whereas, you know, if some days you're in the office till five, maybe some days you work late. Um, sometimes you travel for work. Sometimes you don't. Well, we have a tendency to remember the longer nights as typical. We have a tendency to forget about the days we came in late because of something or had to leave early because of something. Um, you know, we have a tendency to uh, maybe view a typical week as the one where we were traveling, even if we don't travel every week. Uh, so, you know, there's all these things that uh, that tend to happen to, to change the, the number. There's a, a funny study. I, I love to cite this one just because I, I think it sums up the problem. But um, comparing people's estimated work weeks with time diaries, people who are claiming 75 plus hour work weeks uh, were off on average by about 25 hours. Wow. Yeah. That's a significant number. Well, of it hours. matters yeah. because you know if everyone's talking about their eighty-hour work weeks, and you're you're looking like, well, well, geez, I mean, I work you know fifty or something. I guess I'm working so much less than everyone else. But if you know that those eighty-hour work weeks mean that in fact they are working like fifty-five hours, well, <laughs> that that changes things. And and so you know, I think I think it's important to really truly know where the time goes because when we do, then we can spend our time better. We can make wise choices about how we allocate our hours. And I've, I've seen in some cases, I, I, or at least I perceive that sometimes when people do that and say, oh, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so busy, I work, you know, 80 hours a week, that sometimes that's a response because they feel that if they say they just worked 40 or less, that people would think they weren't doing a good job, that sometimes we equate like the amount of time, like seat time becomes as important from a perception perspective than outcomes. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think um, most of us are walking around with a story that is is pretty much unquestioned, but the story in our brains that the busier you are, the more important you are, right? And Mm -hmm. so because of that, you want to show that you're busy because that shows that you're important. Um, And and it seems to make sense, right? Because people who are important have a huge amount of demand for their time. I mean, that's kind of the definition of, of being important. But it doesn't actually logically follow that those people pack every minute of their day. And in fact, many of the most successful people I've studied have a reasonable amount of white space. 
in their schedule, um, mm-hmm. partly because they're being very judicious about what they allow onto their calendars. I mean, they'll have gatekeepers, they'll have people smartly scheduling their time so that whatever comes to them is, is critical for them to do. They also leave open time because it's a good way to seize opportunity, right? Like if you get a really good opportunity coming in, somebody's got a great idea, they want to pitch you, like it's great to actually be able to sit there and listen to the idea, as opposed to being like, yeah, you know, I've got two minutes because I have to race off to something else, which may or may not be all that important. So, oh, yeah, I was talking to someone recently, he used to work in the Obama administration, and he was describing how, you know, the president has so many people around him managing the things that take up mental energy, um, you know, down to, you know, the, the timing of meetings and having that white space. And he said, he reminded me, and cause we were talking about scheduling, if they didn't, if he didn't have those things, he wouldn't be present in the meetings he was going into. He wouldn't be able to make eye contact and actually be focused. And, um, I, I know it's something I'm trying to get better at is, you know, making sure that I manage my schedule in such a way that I am, incredibly present in the meetings that I'm in. Smart idea. Yeah. Cause we only have so much time. I mean, you know, 168 hours a week is a lot, but it's not infinite. Um, and so whatever you have chosen to do, being able to truly focus on the matter at hand is, is generally a better idea than, than racing back and forth between different things. And, and you're obviously podcasting right now. You've written and, and um, put a number of books out there. You, you also do speaking too, right? Yes, I do. So how often or, or historically, how often do you find yourself traveling in addition to all the, the responsibilities you have as a parent and a writer and a podcaster? Yeah, well, that's why I have to answer this carefully now because I just talked about the difference between a typical day and a, an actual day or a typical <laughs> week and a, an actual week. I think I, I added it up. And in 2018, I did 40 trips for speeches. You know, and some of those were not overnight. Some of those were in and out. Mm-hmm. Others were an overnight. Uh, the occasional one was two nights, but but those tend to be relatively rare. That's only if I'm on the West Coast because um, I, I live in the East Coast. And so most places on the Eastern part of the US, I could get in and out with one overnight. So, you know, that's not so bad. I mean, that you could look at that and say like, oh, you know, you're gone almost every week. But on the other hand, I mean, I'm gone for like one night every week and there's six right. other nights. So I'm, I'm home for those. So, so yeah, it's, it, it, there's different ways of looking at that. That's actually less than if you were say working a traditional consulting job where people go and are overnight for five days at a time. Right. Well, it's interesting. I've, I've studied a number of, of consultants um, and their time <laughs> logs too. And these, these are often people where it's, it's the best, it's most important that they really think in terms of weeks instead of days. Because mm-hmm. if you think about a, a consultant, if they were telling you about a typical day, be like, well, I'm just at the client all the time. I have no time for anything else. But a lot of consultants maybe leave early Monday morning and come home sort of Thursday, end of the day, right? That tends to be a fairly traditional, you know, at one client site for people who are in the first few years of consulting careers. But Monday to end of day Thursday is actually only half the week. Um, If you plot out the 168 hours of a week starting, say, Monday at 5 a.m., the Mm -hmm. midpoint of that week, Monday 5 a.m. to Monday 5 a.m., the exact midpoint is 5 p.m. Thursday. So there's actually just as much time after as there is before. So somebody who would say I'm on the road all the time is actually on the road 50% of the time. It's it's sort of a, and and, you know, they may not be at the client every week either. Right. So it's, it's kind of um, interesting how we view Monday through Thursday often as the only days that matter, but they're, they're only half the week. No, that's really interesting. And I certainly always think of Wednesday as the midpoint in the week and, 
frankly, I blur, I blend my Sunday and Saturday together as the weekend. Um, and I don't often think of it as the seven day week. I think of it as a five day work week and then, and then something tacked on, right. As if it's kind of unimportant, but you know, it's not, it's still time. It's a significant amount of time. Yeah. You have four, four children, obviously. And that's, um, that's a (laughs) busy load. Does everyone wake up at the same time in your house or what are the mornings like in your house right now? Yeah. So on a school morning, which as we've established is only five of seven mornings a week, but uh, Mm -hmm. on a, on a school morning, what, what typically happens is that, um, four-year-old comes and wakes up first and will come find me. Um, Mm -hmm. I tend to be the one he wants to find. Uh, (laughs) Crime in bed and snuggle. This tends to be somewhere around six o'clock, 6.15, because I have forbidden him to get out of bed before then. Um, And now he can tell time. Uh, So that's, uh, you know, at least he usually try to honor that request. You know, snuggle, get him up. He's, I let him watch cartoons in the morning because, you know, it's, how I make my life work. Um, And then uh, I should mention my, my husband travels for work too. So, you know, some days we're both there, some days only one of us is there. So, um, you know, that, that all kind of depends on that as well. If I'm, if I'm by myself, that what it would happen is that he'd get me, the the four-year-old would get me, I'd turn on cartoons, I'd might make coffee and read for a little bit. If he was up at six, if it was more like six 30, I wouldn't necessarily have time for that, but get in the shower, get breakfast started get my um, 11-year-old up at 7.15, sit and eat breakfast with him and usually with the four-year-old too at that point, then have a couple of minutes while he's getting ready um, to then uh, relax, have another cup of coffee, then go get the (laughs) nine and seven-year-old up. Um, They eat around 7.45. Depending on the day, uh, we have a nanny who comes around eight o'clock. If my husband is traveling and we're the ones doing the middle school carpool, she'll come a little bit early so I can go drive the middle school carpool, uh, mm-hmm. which leaves at 750. Um, if I'm not driving that day, if the other people are driving, then we get the uh, 11 year old out the door at 750. This is a lot of details now that I'm thinking through it. <laughs> um, it's great though. And how long does, how you know, for your, your, the commute of the kids to school, that carpool, how long does that take? Uh, it's, it's about 10 minutes there, 10 minutes back. So it's 20 minutes okay. on the mornings I do it, which means if I'm doing it, I'm back 810. Um, I've really thought about this, right? Because then 810 to 825, I sort of have this time, like, what do I do with it? The kids, the mid- elementary school kids can pretty much get themselves ready for school. Like they don't need me um, hovering over them. Um, mm-hmm. And, and our, our nanny's there too, dealing with the four-year-old usually at that point. So I would go into my office and now I do um, strength training from basically 810 to 825. Or if I'm not driving the carpool, I'll do it from like 805 to 825. And yeah, just do my kettlebells, resistance bands. Uh, it's kind of a good way to get that into my schedule at a time. 825, I get the nine and seven-year-old out to the bus stop. So get them, you know, corral shoes, backpacks, all that stuff. We go stand in the driveway, wait for the bus. I come back in 835. That's sort of the start of my workday. I think about, uh, I've actually recently added a new component to the morning routine, which is that I do kind of free writing of what I call it from 835 to nine. Um, I was realizing that with various things that I have to write for deadlines and publications and whatever else and podcast scripts, I, I wasn't just doing a lot of writing just for fun to try things out, see what I'm interested in. I like to write fiction on the side. So that's 25 minutes every morning devoted to that. Nine o'clock, then I start my real work stuff. Are you hard on yourself if things go wrong? You know, if the four-year-old's having a tantrum for some reason or or you kind of go with the flow if the schedule is disrupted? Well, the schedule is disrupted by nature. I mean, in that like 
you know, I said what happens on a, a weekday morning, but if I travel once a week, it's not happening on those days, right? That I'm not right, there. Right. Um, or if if my husband's home, then it's different because maybe he's driving the carpool or maybe he's making breakfast or, um, you know, the thing, things do change. If I have a meeting at one of the kids' schools, for instance, then the morning routine is different. Uh, so I, I actually wrote something about this a couple of weeks ago. I looked at this new strength training uh, routine I had built into my mornings between say, you know, 8.05 and 8.25. And I, over five weeks of tracking when I was doing it, you know, there was no week I did it five weekdays out of five weekdays. Um, Mm. It ranged between two and four. Um, And I did it every day that I was in my, I was able to be in my office between 8.05 and 8.25. But there were days I couldn't be because I was traveling or I was at a meeting or I had something else or, you know, something happened with the kids. So it's, it's interesting to think how infrequently typical days truly happen. You know, there's nothing worse than being in a meeting and feeling like your bra strap is slipping. That's why I love Third Love. I didn't know that breast shape matters just as much when finding a good fit. But Third Love does. You can use their Fit Finder quiz online, which is actually super fun to answer a few questions and find your perfect fit in just 60 seconds. Even better, they provide a 100% fit guarantee. So every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. If you don't love it, just return it and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. And this is seriously the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. Straps don't slip and there are tagless labels, which means no itching. On 220, Third Love will officially have 78 bra sizes with bands ranging from 30 inches to 48 inches and cups from AA to I, one of the largest ranges in the industry. These sizes will be available in five of Third Love's most loved classic styles, including the 24-7 classic t-shirt, the 24-7 cotton t-shirt, the 24-7 everyday lace t-shirt, the 24-7 lace back t-shirt, and the 24-7 lace balconette. Third Love doesn't create new sizes just by scaling its existing measurements up or down. They fit each cup size on at least 20 different women with different body types and breast shapes to ensure that its new styles are just as comfortable and beautiful at an I cup as they are at an A cup. And for larger sizes, Third Love also adds premium touches to ensure the bra is stronger where you need it, such as wider straps or a more substantial hook and eye closure, while still keeping proportions and silhouettes in mind. All the details and fabrics remain the same. They're tested on hundreds of women and loved by millions. While other brands charge more based on sizing, at Third Love, bras cost the same no matter the size. Same comfort, same perfect fit, same fabrics, same styles, same price, no matter what the size. Price variations are only dependent on the specific styles, which range from $68 to $76. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com percent now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your very first purchase. That's thirdlove.com forward slash P-E-R-C-E-N-T for 15% off today. And do you mind sharing a little bit more about the book you wrote that's fiction that actually is designed to help people understand some of these concepts? The 
the, the book you were describing? Yeah, Juliet's School of Possibilities is a time management fable. So it's a novella. I've written a lot of books with sort of time management tips and strategies, thinking in different ways about how to spend our time. But I've realized over the years that people really like stories. Um, this tends to be a way that people remember instruction. Uh, in, in you know, That's why you know, people come up to me after speeches and tell me about a story I told, like nobody comes up and says, yeah, that, that statistic you had on slide four was just life-changing for me. That's just not the way people remember <laughs> their information. So I wrote a story about a young lady, a, an ambitious consultant named Riley. Um, one of those people going to client sites, by the way, Monday through Thursday, uh, <laughs> but she's uh, newly in management and her life is falling apart. Um, you know, she's, dropping the ball left and right in her personal life, um, which might be fine if her career was going great, but it isn't because she's doing the exact same thing in her professional life, dropping all sorts of balls because she's just reacting to whatever is urgent and right in front of her. And she's gotten ahead over the years by just, you know, doing everything, doing more than anyone else. But at some point, once you're managing lots of teams, you, you can't just do everything. Uh, you have to think about what's most important to do. And she really has no capacity to do that. Um, and so her life is falling apart. Company gives her an ultimatum, 30 days or she's out. And in the course of this, she goes to a weekend retreat uh, at a little place called Juliet School of Possibilities. And there she meets this mysterious mentor figure named Juliet, who's running a sprawling business empire, is a single mom of two girls, and yet is also, you know, the calmest person she has ever met, despite all she has on her plate. And in the course of the weekend, Juliet explains to Riley why this is and shows Riley two different visions of her life, um, kind of like a Christmas carol based on different choices Riley might make about how she spends her time. And so we hope that Riley emerges from this crucible with, with new ideas for how to um, choose well uh, in terms of how she chooses how to spend her time. It's so interesting. I'm actually excited to pick it up. One of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast is to help younger women in particular who are maybe much earlier in their careers or still in college and thinking about these sort of paths that careers take. And do you mind going back in time to maybe even as far as when you were in college and you know what led to where you are today? Did you ever think this is where you would be at this moment in time? Or Well, I definitely hoped I'd be writing. Um, and I definitely <laughs> hoped I would be writing books. Uh, I would say that that was definitely something I wanted to be doing. And I, I definitely, I, I need to remind myself every time I see one of my books printed up, I'm like, wait, you did. <laughs> this is what you <laughs> wanted. Um, so, so I do need to pause and, and remember that from time to time. But so I, during college, I made money by freelancing for various places. As I said, I've always been a writer. That's just something I've done. So I wrote for various publications to make money. My first year after college, I had a year-long internship at USA Today. I was working on the op-ed page there. And officially, my job responsibilities were fact-checking, doing headlines, getting art, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But while I was there, you know, I was seeing all the op-eds that were coming in, and I saw what they were choosing. And so I was like, well, I think I could do this. So I started writing op-eds for them too. And that was a great relationship. I wound up writing op-eds for them for about 10 years pretty frequently. And that led to a lot of other opportunities afterwards. Um, so the internship ended and I was trying to figure out what to do with myself. And in the process of that, I got hired to ghostwrite a book. And that was a great oh. experience because I saw what goes into writing a book <laughs> in, a, in a very low stakes for me situation and that I'm, I'm writing it, but it's, you know, it's not me, like it's not my career kind of on the line doing it. So I did that for a while. And I mean, I personally am curious about this. And I think anyone listening would be too, like we, there's a lot of 
stories out there on, oh, so-and-so had a ghostwriter. But how does one, especially at that point in your career, become a ghostwriter? Like, did someone approach you? Yeah, or how does that, that that's, that's how it happened. I mean, I was because I was publishing articles various places, your byline is out there. So if you've written on a topic that somebody's looking to write a book on, you might wind up you know, it's just, you put stuff out there, people come to you. I, I, I don't know that there's any other way to describe that as a, as a career strategy, but putting stuff out into the world is networking. Um, you know, we often think of networking as going to a cocktail party and handing out your business card, but putting your content, your, your creations out into the world is also networking because people will see it and they can mm. see what you can do. And if there are people who then want that, if you make yourself accessible, you will then hear from those people. And uh, that's really, I mean, as much as I can say that, that's kind of how a lot of my career has, has happened. Interesting. Yeah. That's, a, that's a very good way of thinking of it. I I personally hadn't even thought of it that way because I'm so conditioned to think about events as networking or actually proactively reaching out. And that's a really helpful way to think about it. So you ghost, you were a ghostwriter for a book and then what was your next step from there? Well, I, I ghostwrote a couple things. Um, and I was doing gigs, various places. Like I, I did, uh, you know, contributing editor thing at Reader's Digest for a while. And then at, at some point, uh, I you know, was really wanting to focus on book writing myself. Um, I got a contract for one book that was a career book that um, was, a, was a learning experience. I thought it was a good book, but uh, it did not sell very well at all. Uh, and so then it was a while to figure out, well, what do I do next? You know, I need to find kind of a different topic, different angle. And you know, tried a lot of different things. And, and it was in this that the, the time management angle happened, that I started writing a bunch of different pieces on productivity and time management. And again, uh, these these things happen. I had a book proposal that, you know, wasn't very good. And it was only sort of, it, it was what became my book, 168 Hours, which was my first time management book, but it wasn't clearly that at the time. Okay. And uh, I'd been trying various things to, to get a book contract for what, you know, I wasn't entirely sure what it would be, uh, but I wrote a review of a book, somebody else's book for a publication, and I got an email from an executive at Penguin and said, hey, we thought that was, I thought that was a really good review. I've seen your name a few other places. If you're not under contract anywhere, would you like to come talk book ideas? And oh, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I would. Um, so I show up with my really not great book proposal, but they, of course, have seen enough book proposals that they could help me shape it into what would be a better idea. And so then I, I went with that, and that became 168 Hours. That was my first time management book. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that started that aspect of my career. That's interesting. So, and how long ago was that now? Um, so 168 Hours came out in 2010. Uh, so I got the contract for it in early 2009. Do you find that the more we are using our devices and the more that our kind of home lives bleed into work lives, that the more challenges people have found around time management? Or do you think it's making time management easier? I just feel like we've had a major digital shift in the last 15 years that have changed some of the ways we even think about time in our day. Well, I'd say maybe. Um, okay. Because one of the things I wanted to do as I wrote about time is avoid this trap. Humans have a funny way of thinking they are very special. Um, 
I, w- I was writing about some of this in, in actually one of my fiction things I'm trying out. Like, why is it that everyone thinks they're living in the end times? Like humans have been around for what, thousands and oh. thousands of years, but we all think that like you know, all these millennial sects that were before um, SECT, I say that right, but uh, that were before the millennium, like we're thinking it was going to end in their lives. And, you know, every time we have these uh, sort of doomsday groups, it's like they think the end times will be when they're alive. Like what, what are yeah. the odds, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, know. Um, I was, I was, I started my career right before the whole Y two K thing. Uh-huh. Um, and so that was some of a lot of my my one of my first jobs, and a lot of my friends' first jobs was on you know making sure the world didn't end. Didn't end. <laughs> I, know. I was like, wouldn't we be so special if it ended during our lives? I mean, kind of thousands and thousands of years of, of even written human history, and it happened during us. Well, no, but I mean, people have always felt busy, is what I can tell you, and. I collect old magazines, for instance. I love to look at stories of how people wrote about their lives in the moment. Um, mm. And, you know, these 1950s good housekeepings that the housewives would talk about just how busy they were because, you know, they had to go to the dentist and wax the floor on the same day. Um, or <laughs> in the businessmen in, in the same era, I read Fortune magazine. And, you know, there, there was a Oh, gosh. I mean, this is, you know, 1950s, the marginal tax rates were were quite a bit higher than they were now. And so there's all this discussion, kind of the Milton Friedman sort of thing, like, well, if, you know, we lower marginal tax rates, will people work more? So that was a big, you know, article topic at the time. And, uh, you know, they'd ask all the executives, well, if you had lower taxes, would you work more? And of course, people were like, well, sure, I'd love lower taxes, but I don't see how I could possibly be working anymore. Right. Mm. And, and so it's the exact same thing now. Everyone feels like they're working more than we were in the past. It's not actually true. There have been time diary studies, um, historic time diary studies, and then time diary studies now. The average work week has declined um, over the past two generations. Um, the, you know, the, the fact that people can reach you at home via your device, people are like, oh, well, work follows you home 24 7. We forget that people had phones in their homes in, say, the 1950s, and people would call you at home, or they'd just keep you at the office. Uh, that's, that's the other true. thing that happened. I mean, now you'd be like, well, I'm on the train answering my emails. Well, you know, in 1950, you'd just still be sitting in your office. <laughs> and so yeah. um, I, I think that uh, there may be some more chopped up nature to time, but it's also because people are doing things that wouldn't have even been on you know their, their radar screens to do. Like, let me answer emails from the playground. Like, oh, I'm feeling so pulled in multiple directions. Well, you wouldn't have even been at the playground with your kids. Like that, that just right, doesn't even right. compute, right? And, and so um, my, I guess that was a very long-winded way of saying that um, I don't really believe that time has changed all that much. It's an interesting point because I think even the your point about being pulled with an email on the playground or something like that, um, it's almost as if we don't really manage our attention and that makes us feel like we don't have enough time, but it's really that we're not focused on one thing at one given moment in time. Yeah, there's something to that. I, I wrote a book um, about a year ago that's called Off the Clock. And for okay. it, I did a time diary study of a day in the life of 900 busy people. I had them track their time. And then I asked them questions about how they felt about their time. And one of the findings I made is that uh, the people who felt most relaxed about time and felt like time was most abundant checked their phones about half as frequently uh, as the people who felt most starved for time. And it's not that they were any, the people who are starved for time were any busier. Like everybody worked within sort of, you know, seven to nine hours on this March Monday, I had them track because that's pretty much how much people with full-time jobs work. 
mm-hmm. there wasn't huge differences in how much time people slept. Like people had, you know, within the range of how much they work and how much leisure time they have. But when we have open time or family time and we choose to chop it up by looking at our devices, it can feel very different than if you are not doing that. Because reading an article online is leisure. Like it is leisure time. It just doesn't always feel like it. I mean, maybe because potentially you could be working on your device too. I, I don't really know what it is, like why we don't register this as, as leisure. But I I mean, there are hilarious things. I found a, a poll online once and you know, it was aimed at you know working moms because uh, often moms have a certain story at them of how we right. were particularly starved for time. But, you know, the poll was like, when did you last have me time? And about 50% of the respondents said they couldn't remember. It's like, well, okay, you're taking an online poll. Like this, this, <laughs> this is free time. This is goofing around. You are not doing anything. Else. Like, but, you know, we don't see it as such. You got a story. No, you're right. You're like, I'm swamped. I'm, I'm swamped. I'm swamped and I am here <laughs> taking online polls. <laughs> That's amazing. No, it's completely right, though. I think that it, I, I'm actually after this conversation, I'm going to be more mindful of what I what I'm doing and what I put it in the leisure bucket or work bucket because I you can you can go down a rabbit hole on the internet too and feel like you just you know you would spend an hour and I have no idea what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas if you were reading like a book for an hour, well, at least you could acknowledge that that was a you know that was downtime. That was cool. That was fun. You know, whereas it's harder to see that of the the hour of internet rabbit holing. I briefly went to digital for my books for a while and I'm back to traditional print, partially because I felt like I wasn't getting the like the part of reading that I find relaxing often is is the turning of the page and the experience of actually reading. And I missed that in the digital world. So I went back to print. Yeah, I, I go back and forth. I mean, I, I definitely love me a good print book, um, but the I mean, the upside of reading on the Kindle app, which is what I tend to do, is is that I know I do have my phone with me everywhere. And mm-hmm. so what could be headline scrolling or social media time can very easily become reading time um, in a way that it can't always with a book, you know, and, and the bar to pulling out my phone seems lower than the bar to pulling out a book. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it's slightly easier to get into it. So I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth on that. I, I guess it doesn't need to be an either or. We can, you know, some books maybe are if it's it's a good weekend kind of book, maybe then that's a <laughs> maybe right, that's right. A, a paperback, and you know something you're trying to read in bits and pieces here and there through the work week might be might be best on the phone. And obviously, as an expert in time management and productivity, are there any strategies that you've brought into your family life, especially with your kids who are maybe older and maybe homework is starting to be introduced? Um, anything that you've shared with them that's made their experiences easier so far? I mean, with young kids, you're it's it's more about thinking like, well, you know, first we do this and then we die, right? So we do our homework before we play video games or things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But especially um, as they get toward later elementary, we started having, you know, homework uh, in middle school, certainly, that is, is not just assigned one night for the next day, um, that you have to plan a little farther ahead. And I, I think that's a great opportunity to think through things like, Okay, well, you know, we could do it the night before, but what what might happen if if you do it the night before? Well, what if we discover we don't have something for it or you're missing a piece or you don't understand something or you'd like to come back to it? Or what if a friend mm-hmm. wants you to come over that night and then you can't because you got to do this? Like, well, you know, what if we know tonight we don't have anything going on? Maybe, maybe it would be a good idea to start tonight. And, you know, and and they might not. That's that's kind of their choice. And I think the good thing about them still being little is you they can learn to make these choices and see how it plays out. 
out because the, the stakes are, are pretty low still at this point in a way that, you know, with the craziness of, of college admissions and stuff these days, that the stakes are maybe less low um, once you get to high school. So it's so better to figure these things out uh, in, in late elementary school and middle school. You've had a, a really interesting path to get where you are and you're, you're a writer, you're a podcaster, and you're doing speaking events, you're a mom of four. If you, if you were going back in time and knowing that you know, your intention had been to write and that's what you've done, right? In addition to many other things. But is there any advice you would give to your younger self or to other women or men who are trying to contemplate and think about what a career path might look like or what they should be doing or not doing as they think about their next steps in their journey? You can both plan and be open to opportunity. And and so, I mean, many of the best opportunities I've ever have have pretty much just come to me, which is mm. awesome. On the other hand, you have to do a lot of stuff to be there to seize an opportunity if it comes to you. So, so having you know a book concept when I went into that meeting at, at Penguin, that was that was good that I had that right. Like it wasn't just like right, hmm, right. what what on earth would I like to write about? Like I, I did know what I wanted to write about, or just you know when the, this this new before breakfast podcast opportunity. Like you know I know different things I'd written about in the past that that our format that people might be interested in. And I had been doing a, a podcast for the past year and a half with a friend of mine that's called Best of Both Worlds um, that looks at issues of career and family. And so I had some experience of knowing, you know, what a good podcast could look like. And, and so that I was able to, to take this opportunity. So I think you can you can do speculative stuff and try things and, and tell the world you're trying them and then be open to what comes uh, because you're doing those things. And if you keep trying things and putting stuff out into the world, world and trying to get better, I think that you will do fun stuff. And it may not look exactly like what you thought it would, but but it will still be things you're you're happy about. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And so, you know, what's what's next for you in your your story right now? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm kind of riding this right now. I've had uh, two books come out in the last year, and I'm uh, just started this new podcast, so I'm at the moment kind of running with those uh, at the moment. Yeah. But uh, I know at some point I'll probably decide I want to write another book. I'm playing around with a, another novel I've I've written that uh, isn't a fable or anything like that. It's just a novel, a real novel, and I hope to spend some time working on that over the next six months to a year and um, hopefully keep bringing before breakfast to a bigger audience. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I know I'm listening to it and it's really, it's what's great about it is that it's so short. I don't know if, you know, it's what, six minutes, right? Yeah. Every day. Yeah. Six, um, six, and five to 10 is what I'm always aiming for. Five to 10. And it really does, you know, as you listen to it, you're like, okay, this is just sort of part of the routine. You can get your coffee, you can listen to this podcast, get a good tip. It's just a, it is actually a very nice kickstart to the day. Well, good. Hopefully people yeah. will build it into their morning routines. Well, anything anything else you'd like to share, either in your story or advice or any moments where, you know, your you know, family life and work life have blurred together, anything you'd like to share before we take off? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I was younger and and as I was thinking about becoming a parent and certainly in the first bit of, of becoming one too, I, I noticed that a lot of the literature uh, about work and life and, and their combination is, is pretty negative. Uh, certainly mm -hmm. the stuff that's aimed at, at women, uh, it, you read a lot of it. It's like, oh, no one can have it all, um, which I guess is one way of approaching it. But uh, I think I would say that my children haven't 
hurt my career in any way that I can see. And in, in fact, like having four kids lived, lends some credence to my idea of being a time management expert. Like, I mean, as you've said numerous times, like four kids, you must be busy. <laughs> so yeah, it's, yeah. Like, I didn't have four kids as a brand building opportunity, but it's kind of been a good one. Um, so <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know, I, I think there are ways that these things can work together. Um, and, and I would certainly hope that no one would feel like they actually need to choose between the two. There is definitely enough time to build a wonderful career and to be very involved in your family life and to have time for your own pursuits too. Time is precious, but, but time is also plentiful in the grand scheme of things too. So I, I think that's not really a paradox and we, we can hold both ideas in our mind at the same time. Yeah, it's such an expansive way of thinking about it. I know I'm going to be more conscious about it as I go about my day going forward. Yeah, so thank you for making the time today. It was incredibly helpful and I loved hearing your story and really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, with additional help from the team at Critical Frequency. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. Episodes are mixed by Tyler Morissette, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts, on our website at the43percent.com, or at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again for listening, and have an awesome week. <laughs>